Hey there traders, looking to take the guesswork out of trading and only 10 minutes a day? Then you need to head on over to AIStockTradingSystem.com right now, where you can get our five-step system to take the guesswork out of trading in only 10 minutes per day. And the only place to get that is at AIStockTradingSystem.com. That's AIStockTradingSystem.com. I go through what I'm doing. I go through what I'm thinking about. I, I tell you know some stories. I will talk about current uh, trades and kind of developments that I'm seeing. Uh, one of the things that I think I'm pretty, you know, I, 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 I'm willing to do that a lot of other people uh, are, I hope I'm, I, are, I'm a little bit better than most is that I'm willing to entertain different ways of looking at the markets. This is the How to Trade Stocks and Options podcast brought to you by 10MinuteStockTrader.com where we cover finance, stocks, options, entrepreneurship, education, and money. And here's your host, voted one of the top 100 people in finance, Christopher Ewell. Hey there, traders. Welcome back to today's How to Trade Stocks and Options podcast. Today, we have a special lesson for you. I'm putting it here on the podcast because I really believe that this is going to provide you massive, massive value. And that's what I'm trying to do here. And hey, listen, if this podcast was useful to you at all, I really highly suggest that you go check out the full trading course at AIStockTradingSystem.com. That's AIStockTradingSystem.com. Markets are people. People are predictable. Outlier can show you how to track market fear and greed with artificial intelligence on over 1,300 of the largest market cap names. Visit outlier.com to learn more. That's O-V-T-L-Y-R.com. They have a free pilot program for the rest of 2021 so you can get access to right now at O-V-T-L-Y-R.com. That's O-V-T-L-Y-R.com. Hey, make sure you subscribe and hit the bell so you'll be notified every time we give you more tools, tips, and tricks to help you trade faster and trade smarter every single week. So, you know, I was, uh, I actually do my research for you. I pulled up this really interesting podcast and uh, happened to be listening to it myself, being a podcast guy, uh, The Market Huddle. Okay. So, tell me a little <laughs> bit about that. Um, so the market huddle is something that I do with my partner, uh, Patrick Serezna, and he is actually the co-host of Macro Voices, which is a big American uh, podcast that does the macro, vo um, uh, macro interviews. And when he approached me, he said, you want to, you know, do a podcast? And I said, listen, you know, if we're going to do a podcast, there's a plenty of, uh, you know, really great ones out there and we're a bunch of Canadians and you know, the reality is, you know, I, we probably can't compete with them, but if we have some fun and make it like entertaining, what do you say about that? And he said, yeah, so that's a good idea. And I said, what do you feel about like drinking beer while we do it? And he was like, yeah, that's a great idea. And so that was in essence, the genesis of the market huddle, like was just us deciding we we're going to have some fun, drink some beer and uh, interview some people on a Friday night. You know, I'm really enjoying it. Actually, I was uh, oh, listening to the one with Misha Gandalf. Uh, oh, what's it called? Horse he fat is, lover, horse lover he fat. Is, okay, yeah, uh, I call him horse fat lover. I don't really understand his his name, but yeah, he's a hilarious dude, and uh, it was a lot of fun. If you're going back to the archives and you're and if you like Michigan Gandalf, you should go and look at the two Jimmy Jude interviews. Jimmy okay. Jude, he's very. Jimmy is uh, is really big on Twitter, but we got him on our show and they could be some of the funniest. The guy is just hilarious and I don't want to ruin it. Just 
go listen to it. Uh, if you like Michigan Gandalf, you'll love Jimmy Jude. All right. I've got one of them already in my queue. I'm looking for the okay. other one right now. <laughs> okay. So how did you get uh, get started in, in trading? I mean, you've been at this for a couple of years, it looks like. I had it yeah, uh, no, more than a couple of years and a few decades. And I try yeah. and be humble there. I, yeah, I don't, yeah, you're, you're I don't nice. try and you're say nice. that kind of you're thing. Nice. Right? I'm old. Uh, the, the, I'll admit that. Um, so when I was a younger fellow, I actually grew up with a father that uh, was the research director at a Canadian brokerage firm. So I grew up with a lot of, uh, you know, you know, stock talk at the dinner table and, uh, you know, usually Vancouver promotion kind of mining companies, you know, West Canadians were, were, were notorious for our, you know, uh, mining companies uh, kind of, um, let's just say sketchy, sketchy st- stocks that end up going a long way, like Briex and things like that. But anyway, so I grew up with a lot of that. And, but the thing about me is that I love games. I just like, hmm. even my, even from the time I was little, I just loved games. He used to tell me that I used to take and like just game, game, game. I just wanted to play games. And so I've always kind of liked game theory. Then I stumbled upon when I was a teenager, I stumbled upon Market Wizards. And Market Wizards was my like life changing book. I immediately realized that this was what I wanted to be. I didn't want to be, uh, you know, trading Vancouver stocks, I wanted to trade macro. And from that moment on, I've just kind of uh, been one to, let's just say, uh, focus on the bigger picture trades. And it's been uh, it's been a kind of wild ride. The long and short of it is that, you know, I did try my hand out at the, you know, in the Chicago pits, but I didn't actually like it there. Came back to Canada, got a job on the institutional equity derivative desk of Canada's largest bank. Um, and in my 20s, I was actually the head risk taker for the equity derivatives department. And that was a great time. It was in the 90s. I got to ride the uh, dot-com bubble, saw some crazy stuff, got to do some terrific stuff. And uh, then in, uh, 19, in 2000, well, actually, my daughter was born in 1999. She was born with a heart defect that was quickly corrected at birth. But it was one of those times when you just have this moment about you ask yourself what's important in life. And I realized that, you know, there was a lot more importance than working for this bank that uh, increasingly was becoming more and more bureaucratic and not as much fun. And I kind of uh, in 2000, when I saw the handwriting on the wall for the stock market, I decided to uh, kind of not retire, but let's just say quit. I quit in uh, March of 2000. I'd like to say that I, um, I was like uh, Michael Jordan after sinking the winning basket at, uh, with, the, with, the, um, with the Bulls because I quit on my biggest paycheck ever. And I said, okay, now it's time to do something else. So I, I went and uh, I started trading my own account a little. And I thought to myself, you know, when I need to, I'll go get a job at a hedge fund or another bank. And one year turned into two, which turned into five, which turned into 20. And uh, I basically have just been trading my own account ever since then. So you you got out right at the top, right? You you did the the well, you know, it, it's what they always talk about in you know the movies and shows, or whatever. You gotta gotta retire on top, right? You That's took down your, your one last job, right? Yeah. You you did your I, Italian job and you were out. I never thought though when I retired um, that 
Well, I didn't retire. So that, that was like, I was literally 29 years old when I quit. Um, Whoa, so really? I, okay. So I was really young. It was like, it was a couple of decades ago. I just, I had decided that I no longer work for the bank. I, I've come to the conclusion I'm not very good at probably taking orders from anyone. So I was always kind of destined to just trade my own account and do my own thing. Um, one of the things is even at the bank, I was direct drive, meaning that I got paid directly on what I made. So I've never really had like a traditional job in terms of, you know, with the, with the, I don't know, like a, a boss that's telling me what to do is always kind of just go out and trade and figure out what you can make from it. And, you know, you'll get a portion of it. So I've kind of always lived that way, but um, I, I thought that the market was overheated. I thought it was, it was time, but I never expected the dot-com to, to crash so quickly. But then even more importantly though, I never expected the next rally, which was the great financial crisis, you know, going into that, when I was at the bank, we, you know, there was people making money and there were some big numbers tossed around, but the next bull market was even crazier. And the reason it was even crazier was because it was part of the China um, kind of expansion story. And so here in Canada, many of my buddies that were before on the desk and that I had done better than them, they ended up far eclipsing me. So although I did get out at the top, I, I ended up, it was just a short-term top that I, that I ended up calling and I would have made a lot more to actually stay at the bank. But that doesn't matter. You know, the reality is that uh, it's, uh, I don't regret it and it was a lot of fun and I got to, you know, take, take I would, most summers I would take off August or even July sometimes, got to spend time with the family. And stuff. So it's, it was a much better lifestyle for myself. You mentioned earlier about how, uh, You've been a game player and you related markets to games. Uh, I had a guest ask me one time, uh, he, he was writing this, uh, this book and uh, it's like an introspective book, you know, figuring out your own trading psychology things. And the first question was, uh, why do you trade? And that really took me back because initially I'm like, well, for money. And then I was like, well, there has been a lot of times where I've traded for no money at all and a lot of negative <laughs> it's money. It's cost me money. I've yeah, it's cost check, me a hell of a lot of money, right? checks to trade. And um, I was like, why <laughs> did I keep trading? And it was, to me, it was exactly what you said. It was the love of the game, the, yeah. the chess pieces, right? Uh, it, it's the greatest game that, that possibly has ever been existed. And, and what's great about it as well is that the consequences of it being wrong, it's just money. So there's other terrific, like if you're truly a game player, you know, there's other really, you know, I don't want to sound crass, but, you know, war is, is in a lot of ways similar to trading. It's, it's the, it's, you're putting yourself up against the, your opponent, you're trying to outwit them and you're trying to do it, but the consequences there are so horrendous, you know, horrendous and people's lives. And it's, it's a horrible, horrible thing. And I don't want it to, and that's why trading is great because it's almost, it's, it's all the gamesmanship. It's all the game theory without it really truly the consequences of being you know it's nobody's life it's just money and yeah it's easy to say um you know i don't want to be too flippant about it just being money but in the grand scheme of things it's it's not it's not the end all and be all of everything right like we you can you can be wrong about trading and not succeed and and and, and still go on to live a great life. So, anyways, I, I I'm a huge fan. I love it. Trading is the greatest thing in the world. I always say that even if I didn't get paid like I did, I would still do it because there's you know I, I love it so much and I'm not sure I'm good at anything else. Well, being paid like you were, 
and basically in theory retiring at 29 and being inspired by the market wizards did uh did you pick up the phone and call jack schwager and say hey jack why don't you let me in the next book here bro <laughs> no um no, I, I never did, although I did have the good pleasure to actually interview Jack Schwager on our show. So that you you were mentioning him on the podcast. It was is a lot of fun. It was terrific. And he's, uh, you know, one of the things that I loved about talking to him was that he's interviewed so many of the greats and learning and listening to him and figuring out what he's come to realize and, and all the different kind of nuggets of wisdom was just a, was a real honor. And there was no doubt that um, my my co-host and my audio engineer was giving me a little bit of flack afterwards. And they were saying that I, they were calling me a fanboy. Uh, and saying okay. that, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Listen, I had a similar circumstance. I just talked to Jack about two weeks ago and okay. uh, I've talked to Jack. I talked to Larry Height, who was in the original market wizards. I've yeah. had Minervini on the show a couple of times and um, I have the exact same every single time. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, for sure. I, I completely, uh, I think it's a real honor and it's, uh, it's very giving of them to come on the show and share. And I'm not anywhere near any of those guys leagues. And I've been lucky enough to have a good life and to figure out a few things about trading, but uh, I don't put myself in any, uh, I, I can't compare myself to anybody in the market wizards. You know, one thing that Jack told me near the end of our interview was um, he really feels that trading is more of an art than a science and more of a discretionary trader versus a systematic trader would do better off, which is really interesting to me because I feel myself, I'm a much more systematic trader. I, I have so many rules that I need to see followed before I would even enter a trade. And I don't draw any lines on any charts trying to, you know, uh, but the, I, I was listening to your podcast and you talked about some sort of like crayon drawer or something oh, like that. That's Michigan Gandalf. He, he, uh, he talked, he calls the t- technical analysts, the, uh, the, what does he call them? They're, they're crayon, the crayon masters or something like that. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I like to give technical analysts a little bit of a hard time, but the reality is that you do need to have some sort of system, not system, uh, you mentioned rules. I think that rules are important. Um, one of the things about trading is that it's like, uh, it's like almost like art. You go and you approach art and you have a black can, a blank canvas, you can do whatever you want. And in some ways that's terrific, but in other ways it also allows you to make a complete mess of things. And it without some kind of basic rules that you kind of use as a framework, it ends up just being a pile of, of, of mess. And, and uh, one of the things that I've always contended is the trading, uh, making money is easy in trading. It's actually keeping it that's the problem. And everyone thinks that they're going against the markets and everyone else. The reality is you're actually trading against yourself. You're going to find as you progress in this business. And as you do more and more trading, you'll find that the real battle is not with the markets and that you'll figure out ways to make money. You'll figure out trades. The real battle is stopping yourself from doing all those stupid things that you know you shouldn't do. And you do. One of my taglines that I, that I, that for my, I read a newsletter and one of my taglines is all I bring to the party is 25 years of mistakes. And the reality is that you just find new mistakes to make. And, and that's the way it is. And you make a new mistake. And I, I can't remember who said it, but someone said, 
a mistake is really an error, only an error when you make it twice. And the first time it's an opportunity to learn. And I, I do think that that's important in trading and, and that ultimately you're going to end up uh, having to come to terms and having to figure out what works for you. And like, so you have your list of things that you do. Other people have other lists. And uh, George Soros used to famously say that when his back ached, that, that he would flatten all his positions. And so everyone has different ways of dealing with it, but you do need to have some sort of system because it's just so chaotic and, and so easy to blow up otherwise. You know, one thing I've been doing recently is uh, listening to Mark Douglas. He's in the original market wizards as well. Yeah. Uh, he's put out seminars and people have ripped them off their DVDs that they purchased and put them on YouTube. Uh, and I don't know how long they'll be there, but they've been there for a little while. And there are some amazing seminars on there. And he talks about exactly that. He talks about, you know, each mistake is a learning opportunity. He talks about, you know, there's a random distribution of wins and losses, and you can't let this one trade have uh, the total determinant in your portfolio and, and things of that nature. And, and I got to tell you, I, I saw a quote the other day that said, I've learned more from YouTube than I ever did in college. And yeah. <laughs> I think there's a lot of that out there. It's, it, it's true. Actually, one of the things that I... Um... You know, I'm, I'm much older than you. And so I was lucky enough to work at a bank where I learned some trading things from other, you know, traders that passed it along. And in some ways, the ability for a retail trader or not even like just anyone to learn from some of the greatest traders out there has never been higher. So in my day, you know, yeah, we had the internet a little bit. So we had a few emails and stuff, but we didn't have the ability to go and look these things up. We didn't have Mark Douglas's uh, seminars on there. Another one that if you're interested is there's a famous um, uh, trader in Chicago that was called, his name was Charlie D. And Charlie D was one of uh, the biggest bond traders at the CBOT. And he has, there, I think there's a couple hour interview where he goes through and tells traders um, how to trade. Like he explains to traders how oh. to do it. Now, some of that information is, is specific to pit trading, but then there's parts of it that are, that are just universal. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's that interview, but, I'll, um, that he, that he talks about this, but he would take out traders. And if it wasn't that interview it was somewhere else, but one of the things that the Chicago traders used to do with young, young people to, that were just learning how to trade was they take them out into the pit and they would say, okay, I want you to buy one. And then I want you to immediately sell it. So when you buy one, you have to pay the offer. So he pays the offer. And then he had to immediately hit the bid and, and sell it. And you might say to yourself, well, that's not that big a deal. It's just taking a loss. And he said, yeah, but that's how easy it is to take a loss. Just take it. And it's, there's, a, there's a huge mental mindset that you have to get around in terms of taking losses. And that's actually uh, one of the the skills that over the years, as I've talked to different traders and I've learned from all these people is that I realize that, you know, we're all going to be wrong or right a certain percentage of the times on our trades. I saw Stanley Druckenmiller talk about the fact that he said that 60% of his time, he, he's uh, right, right on the, on the trades. But if you think about that, that means 40% of the time he's wrong. I saw um, Steve Cohen from SAC, who was one of the greatest traders ever. He talked about one of his analysts. They figured it out and their calls are 55% right or something. It was some number like this. That's the stock so market you, wizards for sure. Yeah. I know but, exactly but, what you're talking about. Yeah. And, but the thing is that, so you realize that it's not their calls that are making them all the money. 
It's them actually handling the risk and learning how to deal with it. And that is truly what is the difference between the, the people that are good traders and the people that are outstanding traders. And that's a, it's a difficult skill. And often it's kind of in behind and you don't even realize it's happening. And it's not something that, you know, it, you'll see different people interviewed and you'll say that guy doesn't seem to know what he's talking about yet. His returns are terrific. And then some other guy will sound great, but he loses all sorts of money. So I, I think that you just have to, as a trader, realize that there's a lot more to this game than just getting the call right. It's how you deal with the position as it goes along. You know, uh, not to keep bringing Larry Height back up, but when I spoke to him, it, it was so funny because I was like, hey, Larry, how's it going? And then he literally spent the next two hours, like without stopping talking <laughs> the entire time. I didn't even get a, a word in edgewise. And I was I was so happy. I was pinching myself. I was like, I can't believe that a market wizard is like expounding upon me right now. And, uh, you know, he kept going back to that. I think he said it 50 times, no less. He's like, you got to learn how to take losses. Yeah. And just kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And he yeah. even said that he did a, an experiment where he had a random entry system without any signals whatsoever, a 2% stop loss. And he said it would beat most fund managers. Yeah. Completely random entry, but just money management. Right. Isn't that fascinating? It is. Like, yeah. That, and, and that we're, we're, and that goes back to my thing about that we're our biggest own impediment. And that is, that's what's holding most of, of us back. And listen, I've spoken, I haven't had the pleasure to speak to, Paul Tudor Jones or, or those kind of guys, but I've spoken to guys that were beside them and talking to them or their traders and things like that. And they've kind of drilled in the same kind of, uh, kind of bias, not bias, uh, ability to just not get emotional about something and to not be attached to a position and to just take losses. And they do it over and over and over again. And to me, that is actually the most important thing that people should just focus on. And I, as I say, I've, I think that making money is easy. I, I, I've always figured out ways to you know make trades, figure it out. I've always found the, the difficulty is controlling yourself and making sure that you don't make messes when things go wrong. How do you feel about options selling? And I reason reason I asked that I'm going to guess that you are not an option seller just off the top of top of the well, board there. <laughs> so I'll tell you, okay, this is, I grew up, uh, as I mentioned, as the equity derivatives trader at a Canadian bank. And the one thing that you need to rem know about index equity derivatives or options is that they generally trade above the realized volatility, mm -hmm. meaning that if realized volatility is 15%, the the options will trade with an implied of 20. So if you delta hedge over the long run, you do this enough, you'll actually make money. So for me, at a bank with all the flows and a bank's balance sheet behind me, and not only that, another important part is that these are short dated options. Mm -hmm. they, we were generally trading like one to three, maybe six months, but they were generally short. So I grew up and I cut my eye teeth and we were always short and we were short because they were fat compared to realized. And not only that, when it came you mean, to actually, do you, do you mean short, like selling the options, but not yes, that's short, correct. I was short. I was short. short gamma. Delta. I was okay. short. No, I, I wasn't short Delta. I was short gamma, meaning that I would go. And if someone wanted to buy puts, I'd sell puts or I'd sell calls. 
And so we would be forced as the market went up, we would be have to hedge by chasing the market. And as it went down, we'd have to be, you know, sell it as it went down. So we were basically selling the insurance that the clients, the institutional clients were asking for. And so this was our trade and it worked great. And the reality is that I had a bank's balance sheet behind me. And so even when long-term capital came, uh, volatility blew through the roof and I was able to just sell more. And, and yes, we had some ugly marks and there were some points, but we were the, we were the natural uh, kind of best sellers of that. So I did not grow up uh, liking being long options because to me, they were just a losing game. And I, and I remember there were a few times when we did get long volatility because it was, you know, somebody was selling it and it was cheap and it was like we bought it at 10 or something. I know that seems ridiculous for an index, but back then things happened. And then the summer would come and nothing would happen. And you just, you really don't know, you don't understand kind of the pain of being long volatility until you do it. And I know everyone goes, well, no, you know where your, your limits are. And I get, and I get it for somebody that's just going and put making one bet and going, okay, I'm going to buy, you know, 50 grand of options. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I'm going to lose my 50 grand. But for us, we were sitting there with a large book and we were making a bet on volatility and you're sitting there and every day you wake up and the theta burn is just crushing you and you're hoping the market's going to move and it doesn't move. And I just hated it. And so long and short of it is I, I have done very little long options. And now uh, the reason I tell you this story is because as I've gotten older and wiser, and one of uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but one of my other main themes about my life and what I believe about trading is that it's important to adapt and to always be learning and not just get set in your ways. I have had the pleasure to talk to some really smart, really rich people like traders. And I hit this point where I realized that there was a common theme that went through them all. And what I realized was, was that they used long dated options as a way to get lots of leverage while they waited for one of their macro themes to, to play out. And I, it's important you, I, I differentiate and say long dated and because one of, the, one of the things about it is that if you end up using short dated stuff, you just get crushed on the theta. You, your timing has to be perfect. So you're not really, you're kind of almost using it as leverage and, or, or, or money management, you know, using it as money management, but you're generally overpaying for that because someone has to sell it to you. But the long dated stuff can trade at, at, at much different prices. And finding opportunities where you can position your portfolio on a long dated uh, option and letting that uh, work for you, letting the trending nature of the market work for you is really important. And so I have increasingly tried to find trades where I can do that. And then I try to find trades that where I believe the long dated stuff is mispriced or there's an edge with the skew or whatever. So I won't just go buy like, you know, I won't get bearish and go, I'm going to go buy, you know, S&P puts or whatever, because the reality is those always trade bad. Everyone's always trying to buy it. But an, a, an example is silver and gold. I, I think that there's a chance that sometime in the next few years, we get a really big bull market in silver and gold and the precious metals. And I can go and buy a structure where I buy like a silver, silver trading at 23 bucks or something, or sorry, this SLV, which is the ETF, is trading at 23 bucks. 
you can buy like a $30 call and that call is trading at a volatility. I can't remember the numbers. I'm just going to make them up. Let's say 35 or 40. And then you can sell like a $50 call and that's trading like a 65. So there's a huge skew. And usually that skew, meaning that, that the implied volatility is higher as it goes out. It's usually the opposite. If you go look at the S&P 500, the S&P 500 trades with the skew the other way around, meaning as you go more out of the money, the skew, the implied volatilities go down on the calls and they go way up on the puts. And the reason is that is because everyone knows about the staircase, you know, up and the elevator down and they have memories of 2008 and the great and 1987. So they, everyone wants to buy insurance from that point of view. So I have no desire to go out and do what everyone else is doing, which is, you know, paying up for puts on that side. But if I can find a situation where I was something I like and then find a good kind of structure or something that's cheap and get long options, that's how I have increasingly started to use them in my portfolio. That was a long answer. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) No, it's good. The reason I ask is um, I started trading uh, based on... um, you know, some, some trading education out there. And it had a lot to do with, oh, you can have super high win rates, just sell options. You can sell calls and puts all day long. The stock's not going to move. It's just going to go back and forth a little bit. And you're going to keep all the premium all day, every day. And uh, I found out firsthand that that's not true. And I wasted a lot of time and a lot of money trying to make that work. And, and at some point I was just like, this doesn't work. I just throw up uh, my hands and I'm like, I don't believe this anymore. And yeah. I got, I got burned twice. I lost my account twice on that, that process. And, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that I didn't know how to take a loss in there. Right. And these, yeah. these trading educators out there, they would say, Oh, if you put on a defined risk spread, just let it go to expiration. And, and if it, you know, loses all of its value and, you know, let's say if it's a $5 spread, you took in a dollar of credit and it loses $400 on that. Well, now you need five perfect in a row. Right. to get back to even. And and even on that, they say, you know what? Take your profits early. Take take that money off the table early. So we're talking 50 bucks on a $5 spread. And so if you're wrong, you need now eight trades to get back yeah. to even. And I was like, the math does not work out here. I don't yeah. know why so long it took me to figure that out. And I, I don't know, somehow I picked every single time to be wrong, it felt like. And so their, <laughs> their high win rate was like basically a next to nothing win rate. And- the more traders I've talked to, it's been exactly the opposite of that. And one of them one day said this incredible quote, and it was way back in the podcast archives, but he was like, I got tired of not making money when the stock would move in my direction. And I was like, yeah. oh, that's actually a really good point. <laughs> you know, yeah. reading all the market wizards and reading everybody else, it's like, you got to find that asymmetrical leverage, which is you take a small amount of risk for a large return. Right. And I was doing the opposite. And so, you know, I always like to ask people, what, what are their thoughts on that? Not to be controversial or, or start a, 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 an argument, but the fact that I think that there are so many people out there who tout the win rate being the be all end all of what you should have in trading when really it's the profitability rate. For trading. Right. So, so here's a, if, another way to explain it. If I gave you a bag of marbles and there was 10 marbles in there and um, four were black and six were white or sorry, let's do six were white and four were black. And I said to you, um, if you pull, uh, you know, let's just do the payoff one per one, meaning that if you, you know, a dollar for dollar, would you want to pull, you know, what would you pay 
to pull um you win a dollar if you get a white and sorry if you get a white and, and you lose a dollar if you get a black okay so what would you pay for that and obviously there's a positive expectation uh you know that you get six you'd pull six on the hole and then you'd lose four so you know you you'd you'd make two on that or whatever and so you kind of figure that out and you figure out how many you have to do but then if i said to you okay so let's take the same let's flip it and let's flip it now so that there's six black and four white and you said well i don't want to play that game i'm going to lose that game of you know in terms of you know if i pay a dollar for that i'm going to lose two dollars but what if i said to you um i'm going to pay you a dollar and a half for every time you win and you lose only a dollar Right. And so you can actually have, if you think about it, you could have a strategy that wins 30% of the time. And if the, if it's winning four times as much as it's losing, then, you know, you could actually find yourself in a profitable strategy. The problem with this strategy is that it's emotionally difficult to execute Mm -hmm. because you're losing, 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 and inevitably there's drawdowns and people pull the trigger and stop trading it at the worst possible time. Yeah. And that, and that's just the reality. Yeah. But, but that equation, if there was one thing that, you know, I, if a new trader taught, you know, asked me, you know, what, what to go study in terms of math, it's, it's figuring out that equation probability versus your payoff is, is in essence that boils down to everything you need to know about trading. But, you know, at the same time, until you have, you need to have a strategy that's repeatable, right? You can't just be like, I'm going to buy that stock. You need a reason to buy the stock. You can't figure out ahead of time what your odds are. Exactly. In essence, you need to be thinking that way. And when you think in probabilities and you think about it, you might go and say, okay, I'm going to buy this stock. I think that if I'm wrong, uh, I'm going to lose two bucks. And if I'm right, I'm going to make 10. And I think that there's, I might even think that there's a less than 50, 50% chance I'm right, but it's still a positive trade. Mm -hmm. And what you'll find is that when you talk to many traders, the really great ones, they'll talk about everything in probabilities. They'll talk about everything in terms of, I think this might happen. I think this is mispriced. I think that if this works out, this will be more. And, And that's very much in contrast to the guys on, you know, TV that on, on CNBC, that I'll scream and they say things with confidence and they, they think the more they say with the confidence that the, like the more that uh, people will follow them. But the reality is you don't want to, if anyone thinks that they know where it's going with that certainty, you don't want to listen to them. You know, you look, I, I go back to Stanley Druckenmiller, I think is, is probably the greatest trader that's ever lived. You go listen to his interviews. They're kind of crap because the reality mm-hmm. is he says, I think that this might happen and it's all mites and, 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 I, you know, there, he's talking about odds. It's, it's none of those Jim Cramer, bye, 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 bye. He never says that. And it's not that he's being wishy-washy. It's just that he's staying flexible mentally himself. Because the reality is that he might change his opinion like as new information comes. And so I think it's important to just remember that, that someone's confidence about a trade doesn't make them any more right. And you should be more interested in the people that uh, say something about you know, I think that this is a, a positive risk reward and, and it'll work. Uh, I, and one of my favorite books is Jesse Livermore's um, uh, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. And I think he said at one point, he said, you know, often the old guys in the back that say this has a chance of happening end up being the guys that you should listen to. 
And I can't remember the whole quote, but he basically said, I have no interest in talking to the guy that's so sure screaming at the front and every getting everyone's intent uh, intention. I'm more interested in talking to the guys in the back who talk about, you know, maybe this could happen. I think there's a good chance of this occurring. Well, it's because that guy in the front, he he's not emotionally ready to be wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he's not only that, by the time people are feeling that confident about something, chances are it's more than likely baked into the price. Oh, yeah. The so, over. you know, right. uh, I, I kind of briefly mentioned this, but one of my abilities that has enabled me to go so many years trading for myself is the ability to trade many different things and to look for opportunities in different places. But having said that, I, I one of the kind of themes that I always go back to is that anytime that all of a sudden what I believe is on the mainstream news and everyone believes it and Zero Hedge is talking about it and things like that, every time I've been tempted to say, oh, you know what, I'm going to hang tough, this time is different, it never is. And it always ends up being a trade that I, you know, I regret for not getting out of uh, just because when in this day and age, when trades get crowded, they end up disappointing. And especially for me, for macro trading, that uh, is a little more, I would say, choppier than maybe somebody who's just buying a stock and is riding a trend for many, many years. I'm looking in, and the positioning of the market participants is often very important for me. You know, you talked about how uh, you would consider yourself 25 years of mistakes on the macro tourist, which is, yeah, I love that. And the reason <laughs> I, I, I say that is because on my podcast, I am as open and transparent as it comes. And I will gladly tell the fact that I lost money on this because I did that and I shouldn't have done that. But because I shared that with you, maybe you won't do that and it'll be less expensive yeah. of a lesson. For what are sure. Some of those, no. I was going to ask, what are some of the mistakes that you, uh, you got your biggest lessons from? Well, that's a great question, actually. Um, okay. So I guess one of the early ones I remember doing it was this. Um, I was at, at the bank and we were doing what's called index arbitrage, where the futures get mispriced versus the, uh, the stocks, underlying stocks. And so we sell futures, buy stocks. But I was also in charge of making markets for the upstairs clients who wanted to come and buy big pieces of the ETF. So we had positions, although we were doing arbitrage, we also mixed them with positions. And so sometimes, you know, when they, when they would reach for, you know, the pit would be reaching for some stocks, we might, you know, for futures, we might sell them futures and then not hedge the whole thing, you know, wait for it, wait for it to, you know, the, the, the panic to subside and then go bid for some baskets and try to do better. So we had positions. And I remember very early on when I was, I was a young guy, it's like 23 or 24, and I was newly in charge of this this thing and me and my partner on the floor who was also able to take risk we got offside on just a wall of buying it was just a wall and we got almost like deer in the headlights couldn't take the loss that we just talked about and then that night the boss looked at it and looked at how much we lost and then looked at the position and said like i remember him yelling at us like what the hell are you guys doing and he's like just like what the what the f you know like take the loss get it off the sheets and that was one of my kind of first things. And I, I still make that and everyone does, but uh, the, I still remember that one very clearly. Uh, the other thing that I struggle with, I'll just tell you my weaknesses as a trader is that I am not afraid to go against the trend against the, be a contrarian. Uh, for example, in COVID, I was convinced that in March, I was lucky enough to time it pretty well. I even got on a podcast and said, you know, a very big podcast and said, you should buy it. 
And I remember the hate mail I got. Like I just like not the hate, the, the Twitter hate. And it was just brutal. Like it was just like I was like, oh my God, these people are terrible. And inevitably, I think I was three days early. And I it's it, it, I kind of laugh. I go, it takes everything in my bones not to to retweet their their hate mail back to them or whatever. But um I'm not afraid to be against the against the group against the the crowd, and I think that's part of the reason I do that is because I, I I as I said that we did arbitrage and I had to make markets on an institutional basis, so I was often trading against clients, and I saw the clients necessarily didn't necessarily have any form more information than me, and in fact, a lot of times I was better able to do it, so it didn't never scares me. But one of the things that I struggle with is the moment everyone starts to agree with me, I get nervous. And, you know, I just told you how that the, I don't like it when everyone agrees, but there is, I have to acknowledge that there's a moment when the crowd's right. And, and for me, I struggle really hard with riding that, 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 that point out, meaning taking the, the amount that I need out of the market by letting the crowd take me along. And it, and it's just, everyone has different things that they're positives and strengths, you know, weaknesses and, uh, and strengths. And, and for me, that's one of my weaknesses. So I continually try to not let myself get out of positions too quickly, just because everyone seems to be agreeing with me because I realize that I have to realize it's a longer term process. Um, what are some other errors? I remember in the great financial crisis, I went and I got bearish and I was, I thought I was, I thought I was a genius and I made all sorts of money. I got up and then I said, okay, now I got some room to play with and I bought it. And it wasn't the worst buy, but the reality is that it went a lot lower. And one of the things that I have, I've had to adapt my trading to is that I read uh, something in a market wizards. I can't remember if it was Soros. Druckenmiller or who it was, something to said, like, you know what the key is to making big money? It's to getting up, chipping away to get up 40% and then going for the 100, meaning the 100%. So taking risks when you're up. And I had thought that this was the, the bee's knees and a wonderful advice for many, many years. And over the years, it's cost me nothing but dough. And I'll tell you why. What happens to me is that I am pretty good at chipping. So I can get myself up 40% or 50% by, by, by summertime. And then I say, okay, now's the time to go for it. Now's the time to like make it so I can make the big dough. And I change the nature of my trading. I change what I'm good at. And I start trading differently. And then inevitably, because I'm not emotionally able to handle it, I go and I introduce more volatility to my portfolio. And I end up making bad decisions based upon that. Uh, so that's another kind of mistake that I've learned. And here, I'll give you my one last one that I think is, um, and it's kind of tied into the same. In the old days, when I used to get my portfolio moving around on a daily basis more than I was comfortable with, I used to leave the upside volatility. I wouldn't touch my positions, meaning that I would let upside volatility run and I would cut it when my volatility to the downside was there. And that's kind of the standard, you know, you know, wisdom out there is that you, you let your winners run and you, you know, cut it for me, what I have found. And now don't forget, I use a lot of leverage. So I'm an unusual trader, but I'm kind of more like the old school 
macro type guys that were, were really, you know, using a lot of leverage, a lot of different positions. But what I have found is that I, whenever my portfolio starts to move on a daily basis, more than I am comfortable with, whether it be to the upside or the downside, I reduce my um, notional, like I take down risk. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that because inevitably, let's just say you're comfortable with 3% days. Like, let's say, you know, or let's say you you want 2%, you're comfortable with three, but then all of a sudden you have a five up and then you have a five up and then a four up and now all of a sudden you're up 9%. That's a good day. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good day. But the thing is, what I've found is that that you get up nine and then next thing you know, you have a six down. And what's happened is the natures of your portfolio has changed. Volatility has gone up with the board. And when the volatility goes up, you have to always ask yourself, am I still emotionally capable of making the right trade based upon this new volatility? And so inevitably what would happen is that I would, you know, the volatility go up. And then the, when the vol on the downside went, I would pull the trigger too quick. So for me, if I go up, let's say I want the vol to be three, and then I have a 5% update, I'll start selling and reducing positions. And then let's say the next day is four, I'll still sell and reduce positions. Then, so the next day, that would have been six if I hadn't moved it on the downside is now all of a sudden only four or three, and I'm able to handle it and emotionally better able to deal with it. So what you all you always need to ask yourself is, am I in the mental frame where I can make the right decisions based upon the current volatility? And that's what I, what I've, it's taken me many decades to figure out. And uh, hopefully, you know, someone else will get some wisdom from that and not have to take so long to, to kind of come to that conclusion. So speaking of wisdom, what's some of the wisdom that we can find at the macrotourist.com? <laughs> so uh, like a segue, that was pretty good, right? Uh, yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> uh, you know, I try to just, uh, it, it's a little bit of, um, I go through what I'm doing. I go through what I'm thinking about. I, I tell, you know, some stories. I will talk about current uh, trades and kind of developments that I'm seeing. Uh, one of the things that I think I'm pretty, you know, I, 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 I'm willing to do that a lot of other people uh, are, I hope I'm, I, are, I'm a little bit better than most is that I'm willing to entertain different ways of looking at the markets, meaning that I'm not afraid to go and say, hey, this is something new. And like, for example, MMT is one that I talk about. I got into MMT, not because I was a big believer in it or whatever. It's because I was curious about it and I was willing to learn about it. And I have been talking about MMT and saying, even if you don't like it, it's coming. This is modern monetary theory. And you'd be a fool to not learn about it. And that was uh, three, four years ago, a long time ago. And it's, and it's served me well. So hopefully you, you know, I, I try to open everyone's idea uh, eyes in terms of on some different ways of approaching things. But most of all, I just like to have fun. Um, it's definitely a little bit more lighthearted. I don't have a compliance department. So there's no issues that way. And uh, it's just, it's great. And, uh, you know, I'm actually, we have a, a great discussion group, like uh, at the bottom of every post, there's an ability to, uh, to write about things. And one of the things that I like is that I used to do this for free. I used to have a letter for free and then I eventually charged for it. And when I charged for it, it changed the, 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 there was no more trolls and it ended up being really terrific. And one of the great things that one of the things I really appreciate now is I write a piece and there's everyone's respectful and you can get on there without feeling you're going to get, you know, slammed by some, 
troll. And not only that, a lot of people are way smarter than me and have a lot of great ideas that share them on there. So I feel very privileged to be able to do this, uh, to write this letter. Well, speaking of way smarter than me, I got to tell you, that's one of the blessings of having the podcast. And I'm sure you've come across it at some point, the ability to meet with people like you and, uh, you know, the market wizards and things that we talked about. And I, I, I tell people the podcast is almost selfish because it's the fact that I can actually go and I can talk to these people and I can ask them all my questions that I had ahead of time and I can build upon that and I can use it in my trading. And then, yeah. you know, the whole audience is as, you know, thousands of people who are a fly on the wall and they can all benefit. And it's like yeah. a rising tide lifts all ships and this is the boat. Y'all better get on. You know yeah, what I mean? That's a, that's a great way of putting it. I always joke <laughs> and say, even if nobody was listening, I'd still do the interviews because I consider it a great to honor to be able to talk to some of these people and learn what they're thinking. And you're right. You get to steer the questions to what you want to steer them to. And it's terrific that way. Yeah. Without a doubt. You know, Anyways, this has been great, were, Kevin. I'm glad we're able to, uh, to connect. I know the first it a, time it didn't it work a, out, but. It was a real pleasure being with you and you're a terrific interviewer. It's really great to, to get to know you. Oh yeah, absolutely. And Hey, let me know if, uh, if you guys ever need a guest and you're, you're running out of time on your market huddle or anything else, I'd be glad to jump <laughs> on and shoot, shoot the shit with you there. First sounds, sounds great. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Kevin. Have a great day, man. You too. Take care. See ya. Bye-bye. Okay. So what'd you think? That was pretty incredible, right? Now, if you like that, that's only a taste, only a sample of what you're going to find in the full AI stock trading system. And I really highly encourage you to go and check this out. Obviously, you are interested in learning and how to trade. And that's why you're listening to this podcast. Now, I'm going to take and download my entire trading system that I use day in and day out onto you. <laughs> and the only way I'm going to be able to do that is over at the AIStockTradingSystem.com. You're going to get phase one, two, and three, several bonuses. And on top of that, I'm going to walk you through over a dozen trades that I put on inside of my account, holding your hand and showing you exactly how I got in, how I got out, how I use the artificial intelligence data, and how this could work inside of your own trading portfolio on a daily basis. So make sure you head on over to AIStockTradingSystem.com. That's AIStockTradingSystem.com to learn more and to get started and to download my decade plus worth of trading experience into your hands so you can start using the AI Stock Trading System today, the five-step system to take the guesswork out of trading. Hey, if you like this video, let me know by leaving me a like below and then subscribe and share it with somebody you think could use it as well. Be sure to comment below with your biggest takeaway from this episode and any suggestions you have for future episodes. And finally, make sure you watch these other videos to help you trade faster and trade smarter. And I'll see you on the next episode. 10 Minute StockTrader.com content is for information and educational purposes only. It is not, nor is it intended to be, trading or investment advice or recommendation that any security, futures contract, options contract, transaction, or other financial instrument or strategy is suitable for any person. Trading securities can involve high risk and the potential for total loss of any funds invested. 10MinuteStockTrader.com and Christopher Ewell, through its content, financial programming, or otherwise, does not provide investment or financial advice or make investment recommendations. Investment information provided may not be suitable for all investors and is provided without respect to the individual investors and audience's financial sophistication, financial situation, investing time horizon, or risk tolerance. TimMinuteStockTrader.com and Christopher Ewell are not in the business of trading securities trades, nor does it direct client commodity accounts or give commodity trading advice tailored to any particular client situation or investment objectives. 10MinuteStockTrader.com and Christopher Ewell are not licensed financial advisors, registered investment advisors, or registered broker-dealers. Stocks, options, futures, futures options, and other financial instruments not included here involve risk and are not suitable for all investors. 
You alone are responsible for making your investment and financial trading decisions and for evaluating the merits and risks associated with the use of any financial security and broker platform. For more information, please visit 10minutestocktrader.com legal. And thanks for stopping by.